Amen. Please be seated. As we consider the greatest event in human history, I will read Matthew's account in the 27th chapter of his gospel. And I want to be very clear. What I'm reading is a, it's an historical event. This happened. This is not a myth. This is not some symbolism. This is a fact of history. It's revealed to us by four gospel writers and many, many other people give attestation to the fact of the resurrection that we come here today to remember. We come every Sunday because of the resurrection. In fact, let's just be honest. This life is very, very short. If there is no resurrection from the dead, that is, if Christ has not defeated death, we are all wasting our time today and every Sunday. Go do something else. But he has risen. So we come today to hear God's holy word giving uh, this account. Stand please as I read Matthew 27, 62 through 28, verse 10. And hear once again the reason we are here this morning. The reason why we can live. The reason why we can look to the future. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he, as he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Let us pray. Father, thank you for giving us something to preach, to believe, to lay hold of, to know is true. And Lord, as we hear this and consider it again today, I pray that you would leave everyone changed today, that we'd see the power of the resurrection still at work in the lives of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, having just read the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is the historical account of what happened that first Easter Sunday, I will now read one of the many passages in the New Testament that gives us insight regarding the impact or the effect of the resurrection on our lives. The passage I've chosen is 
on your outline. It's from Romans chapter 8. I'll read this as just verses 9 through 11. Hear what Paul says in Romans. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Many places in the New Testament refer back to the resurrection of Jesus as a way of not just motivating us, but as a way of empowering us to live and walk in a newness of life that's totally different than life before the resurrection, before life became new life. Now, I know personally, as I grew to appreciate this message, I always grew up hearing about the resurrection and believing it as a fact. In fact, many people I had met, and maybe you've met professors, others, people that you know, they'll acknowledge that the evidence is there. It's not really a matter of evidence. What do you do with something so powerful? Because if Christ is raised again, that kind of power over the thing that scares us the most, death, that kind of power means he has authority also. And I think that's where the hang-up comes. If I acknowledge he rose again, then what he says in his life, attested to by the apostles given to us in the scriptures, now that has bearing on us. That's authoritative to us. And maybe we rebel against it a little bit sometimes. I know in my life for a while I did. I could see that Jesus is who he said he was, but that would mean things would be different for me. I realize there's no plan B. Christ raises from the dead is my only hope. It's the only hope of anybody. Because anything else you're following has some dead founder attached to it. They may have great sayings that you put on fortune cookies. Or other things that we look at and say, oh, that's wise, or that may stumble across something we see God reveal in His Word. But if it's trust in them, why? I mean, fundamentally, they're dead. We need someone whose tracks are on the other side of the grave. That's exactly what Christ provides for us. And it's so profound that it will change your life. It will absolutely alter your way of looking at things. Now, I'm not here to tell you you'll be all happy as soon as you realize this and come to Christ and recognize Him as your Savior and Lord. In fact, many difficulties will actually come because you'll see through lenses that are actually giving you a real picture of the world. And some of that can be depressing at times. Even in our own lives, we realize our lack of faith, our complete need for God to provide for everything. That's tough. It takes us off the throne. It doesn't feel good. But over time, we start to realize that's the real story, and that's where glory comes to God through you submitting, being submissive to his will for your life. And when I look at history of people who have professed the name of Christ, how that's radically changed them. There's some degree to which we're soft because we don't, we're not pressed often, at least from an outward force, regarding our faith and our profession in Christ, right? We don't receive much persecution, maybe some, but not much, not at least like our predecessors and fellow Christians in other parts of the world. So I've taken to reading quite a bit of history and quite a bit regarding people who profess Christ, what impact that had on their life, especially those people who lived in cultures uh, that weren't as friendly for people who professed 
faith in Christ. One of the most remarkable periods in the history of the church happens in the first 300 years of the church's life this side of the cross. You remember the apostles come uh, to plant churches, ordain elders. The church starts to grow, but it's still illegal to be a Christian. Much persecution happens in those first 300 years. And a very interesting guy named Eusebius, which is a great name, by the way, Eusebius. Anyone with child, Eusebius would be a great name. You might think about having your child be. You see, I want to baptize Eusebius in the next nine months. Eusebius of Caesarea was a bishop, and he witnessed this transference from severe persecution to Christianity being made legal by Constantine. Quite a period to live. He saw some of the most heinous crimes committed against Christians and turned around to be where it was actually uh, mandated in some places that the church be given money and the ability to build and grow. So he watched a lot of change in his life. But he writes some of the most vivid uh, historical narratives of people who claimed the name of Christ and then were willing to go to incredible lengths to uphold that profession of faith. And it's amazing to me because it's not hard for me to profess faith in Christ. I don't receive persecution for it. What makes these people willing to go into death for something that all they have to do is to say some words of recantation and they'll be left alone? Listen to some of what Eusebius says about some very interesting brothers and sisters in Christ in these first 300 years of the church's life. Eusebius writes about the man, the bishop before him in Caesarea. Listen to the account Eusebius gives regarding Agapius. He was brought to the arena with a murderer to be cast to wild animals. The emperor gave clemency to the murderer. When the Christian refused to accept liberty by renouncing its faith, he rushed against a bear that was let loose upon him. And after being mauled by the bear, he was taken to prison, surviving for one day. Stones were then bound to his feet and he was thrown into the sea. What would make someone go through this? Certainly not a savior who's no savior at all, who would still be dead, saw beyond death. Then there's Apollonius. He was renowned for his learning and wisdom, an older man in the faith, a leader in the church. He gave an eloquent defense to the Roman jury that saw his case. He was immediately, after the crowd seemed to be swayed, he was immediately taken out and decapitated. No further discussion. Aphanaeus, a teenager, a teenager who saw a friend be coerced to sacrifice to an idol. This teenager was seized and torn by the soldiers, Eusebius writes. He received innumerable stripes on his whole body and was cast into prison. There he was stretched with both feet, a night and a day on the rack. When he was brought before the judge and refused to make a sacrifice, his sides were furrowed and scraped to the bone while he was being beaten on the face and neck. When he still did not yield, they covered his feet with linen steeped in oil and set fire to the cloth. The fire penetrated to the bones, but the youth did not die or yield. Defeated, the tormentors returned him to prison. After three days, he was taken again to the judge. This time, as he continued to remain faithful to his belief, he was thrown into the sea and drowned. There was a woman, Eusebius writes, of Blandina. She was tortured by tormentors who took turns from morning till night until they were overcome. She continued 
to live despite her whole body being torn asunder and pierced, Eusebius writes. Later, she was bound and suspended on a stake, being exposed as food for wild animals. When none of the animals would touch her, she was taken down from the stake and returned to prison for another time. Then, after scourge or exposure to the animals, fire, she was thrown into a net and cast before a bull. After much tossing from the animal, she died. These stories evidence many things. The extreme wickedness and sinfulness of man, which we have seen such displays in our own days, should not be too hard for us to realize what's truly the heart of man. But when all these things are poured out on these people, who I remind you did not have personal copies of the scriptures, they were meeting in secret. When these people are confronted with such torture, they stand because they recognize how short and quick this life is even as painful as times like those could be, and how eternity has been won for them by Christ, who is their Savior. And they can say it with confidence because he's not a dead Savior, because he's still alive. Their confidence was placed firmly in the one who defeated death in the face of death. What was so powerful in them that seemed to relish the idea of being tortured for Christ? With death being the ultimate fear of every human being. Every human being fears death. Why were these believers seemingly not afraid of dying? Don't you want to know? If we do not fear death, what is there left to fear, really? Well, I want to spend some brief time this morning looking at two interlocking perspectives about the resurrection. They interlock because... You need both perspectives. One is the objective historical reality of the resurrection. Bridging is the doctrinal perspective, what it means for us who are in Christ. But then it connects to what we will call a practical or personal perspective. That is, the power of the resurrection. It's certainly powerful to raise one from the dead. But what does that power at work in Christ, raising him from the dead, have to do with you, the individual believer, united to Christ by faith? How does resurrection power impact your life today? I give these examples because I believe in the ultimate sense, it's that resurrection power that gave these brothers, these sisters, younger brothers, younger sisters, the ability in the face of such torture to stand up for Christ. Knowing that most of us won't deal with that extreme, but put whatever your difficulty is, whatever your anxiety it is, and put it in light of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection that is yours. Fear starts to go away when we recognize the ultimate victor over death we are united to by faith forever. Let's consider two questions to help us with these two perspectives. First, why does the resurrection of Christ matter? That question focuses us on the fact of the resurrection. It's historical, objective, it's doctrinal, if you will. But secondly, how does the resurrection translate to power for living? There are many passages in the New Testament that refer to the resurrection and its power being something accessible to us as believers. First, why does the resurrection of Christ matter? There are several reasons. I will mention them briefly, and I have them for you on your outline. But I want to share with you what Dr. Philip Schaff wrote so wonderfully regarding why the resurrection of Christ matters. Schaff said that the Christian church rests on the resurrection of its founder. Without this fact, the church could never have been born, or if born, it would have surely died a natural death. The miracle of the resurrection and the existence of Christianity are so closely connected 
that they must stand or fall together. By the way, I know that when making an argument, it's not the wisest thing to tie everything to one particular pillar, if you will. Uh, You want to spread things. You don't want to create a watershed, right? Well, I'm going to be totally honest with you. Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection. There is no Christianity. And whatever some guys or some gals are doing in the pulpit today, if they don't believe in the resurrection, it's a total waste of time. It's just they're just getting up and they look liturgical. They look churchy. But they've totally lost the meaning what Christ has come for. So it does stand or fall in this. I totally get that and understand that. And I'm fine with that as a pastor. Schaff says, if Christ was raised from the dead, then all his other miracles are sure. I mean, what's changing water to wine if you come back from the dead? You know, really? What's building an ark and putting every living animal, land animal, or representatives of all them on? And in all the stories that are laid out, really, they're, they're very easy to believe when you understand the power over death that God the Son had. If Christ was raised from the dead, Shaft says, then all his other miracles are sure and our faith is impregnable. On the other hand, if he was not raised, he died in vain and our faith is in vain. It was only his resurrection that made his death available for our atonement, justification, and salvation. And Shaft simply means to say that for all the good he seemed to have done on earth and for all of us being able to say he could be the sacrifice for my sins, it's only words. If God does not accept that sacrifice, how do we know he accepts the sacrifice? He raises him again to life. It was only his resurrection that made his death available for atonement, justification, and salvation. Without the resurrection, his death would be the grave of our hopes. We should be still unredeemed and under the power of our sins. A gospel of a dead Savior would be a contradiction and a wretched delusion, Schaff writes. This is the reasoning of St. Paul and its force, irresistible. Let's consider just briefly several reasons why the resurrection matters. And I put these for you on your outlines. First, the resurrection matters because it shows that God acted in history. We see God acting in history in multiple ways. The, the Bible is an historical account that gives us what he did, and the miracles are replete throughout. But nothing is quite as well attested to as the resurrection by God's providence, placing at a time when the oral word was, was paramount. And there were over 500 witnesses over a 40-day period. In fact, the reason why Jesus stays that long on earth after he rises again is, is for the purpose of, of establishing a record, a historical record. Forty days he stays. Five hundred different people see him. People totally transform. People who could not even stand up to a servant girl are now transformed. And five hundred different people saw Jesus in these days that he was there. And I promise you, that is a huge amount of witnesses to see something firsthand. In the early service, we had the two side sections roped off. We probably had 150, maybe a few more people here in the two sections. I promise you, that if I would have fallen down these stairs and any of you had not been at the service, were at the brunch, you would have heard about it in all detail. Right? I mean, we know that's the case. You know how it is where you work, how quick it takes. Only a few people hear something and it passes through everybody. At school, something happens in the morning. Did you hear about so-and-so later? doesn't matter what happens. Even in our little office with just four or five staff members, it only takes a little while for us to talk about something Brian did. 500 witnesses see one who was crucified. Uh, 
rendered so beaten and battered that he didn't even look like a man. And God had given him a glorified body and 500 people saw it. And yet, when those people were taken into the Colosseum or wherever it was that the Roman authorities were killing, they didn't say to those people, you need to disavow that Jesus rose again. No, it was pretty well understood that he rose again. Secular historians account for this phenomenon of this one who was said to have risen again. What they asked the people to do is recant Christ as Lord. Not that he had risen again. That wasn't arguable. The issue was, you can't say he's Lord. So, resurrection matters because it shows God's action in history. The resurrection also matters because it fulfills the scriptures. Throughout the scriptures, we see forecast to Jesus, the sacrifice for our sins. And in more veiled form, the Old Testament speaks of, through various authors, Job speaks about the Redeemer living, seeing in the flesh. The psalmist in several places refers to the raising again of that sacrifice. Isaiah 26 and 53 speak similarly. Most vivid, though, is when David writes in Psalm 16, verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or the grave or hell, as some, inter- as some translations put it. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Paul and Peter both use that passage to show that the forecast of the raising again of Jesus. But most vivid is Jesus himself, as he's walking with his disciples, all the gospel writers recount many times where Jesus predicts, foresees, tells of his death to come and his raising again. It was confusing to them. They couldn't understand. Many times he'd say it to them and they wouldn't say anything, or at least the text doesn't record them reacting. Uh, They were confused a few times, it does say. One such case is in Mark chapter 10. Listen to what Jesus says, foreseeing his death and then his resurrection. He says, see, we are going to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise, Jesus says to his disciples. Maybe you remember most vividly when he took the story of Jonah and he talked about how Jonah was in the belly of that big fish for those three days. And he says, so the Son of Man will be in his tomb, essentially, for those three days. So Jesus forecasts throughout, and the scriptures are fulfilled with his resurrection. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he says that Jesus is delivered to death, buried, and rose again according to the scriptures. The resurrection matters also, though, because it demonstrates that Christ's substitutionary death was necessary to break the dominion of sin and death. You see, sin and death ultimately reigns for all of us unless someone breaks that dominion. We can't break it ourselves because we're dead. Dead people can't free themselves. Someone has to break it. And so by Jesus rising again, he demonstrates that what he did in paying for our sins is true. It's verified. And it was necessary. After making sacrifice for sins, our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. This ties closely to another reason the resurrection matters. It matters because it vindicates Christ's death as a victory over sin and death. It authenticates that God accepts it. God didn't leave him in the grave. Uh, he leaves all those in the, in the grave who are in their sins. Uh, in, in that sense. They, they're not rising again, at least not to life. But with Christ, worthy sacrifice, he does not abandon his soul, he raises him again. He vindicates Christ's work, his death on the cross for us. 
The resurrection matters also because it guarantees that we are released from the dominion of sin and death. Romans 6 and Romans 8 tie together the believer with Christ. The one who trusts Christ with Jesus. So that Jesus' fate becomes our fate. And as God raises Jesus, the firstborn, the first fruits of the resurrection, the first one to rise with the new body, we too know that we will rise as Christ, the one we're united to, rose. It guarantees we're released from the dominion of sin and death. We see it in Christ. Death no longer has power, kingship, lordship over us. The resurrection also matters because it gives assurance of our resurrection from the dead. As I just mentioned, because Jesus raised, we will raise as well with a similar body to the body Jesus was given. This is not it. It's not the end for us. It's so lame, frankly. We're sinners. And what we bear in our bodies still bears that sin. But we'll be given a new body. And we know we'll be given a new body because Jesus was given a new body. And he manifested that new body. And it'll be different. I can't tell you exactly what it'll be like, but it'll be different. Now, he still ate. He still, he had a physical presence. He was with them. In his case, there were wounds that were left to be shown and seen. I don't know what our new bodies will be like, but I promise you they'll be better than the ones we have. Amen. We have assurance of the resurrection from the dead. You know, as I have had opportunity, God has given me the opportunity to preach, conduct funerals of people. Uh, not members of the church in many cases where a family member will say they know someone who didn't go to a church. Could you go and do the funeral? And in some cases, I knew something of the person. Sometimes I don't know anything about where they are in, in the Lord. But I do know this. Anywhere there are living people, there are dead people too. And there are people that need the words of life. And so when you go into such settings, there's no more vivid time for a person to think about their destiny than one when their loved one is at room temperature. Just like every one of us will be. Now, we put that off. We don't want to think about that, but we're forced to think about it when someone we love dies. And there's a, an opportunity there, and I don't view it in any manipulative way, just simply an opportunity for one, in the midst of this confusion and sorrow and, and this great grief, to just say the truth. I like doing funerals more than weddings. Because at that funeral, I can say with tender hearts that Jesus wept when he saw death. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And the reason why it's so powerful what he says in John 11 is because what happens in Matthew 27. He is the resurrection. How do we know? Not just because he raised Lazarus, who would die again humanly, but because he himself defeated death and was then seated at the right hand of the Father and lives and reigns now. That's the message we need to hear. Because we're all dead in our sins and trespasses. But he made us alive together with Christ. And that living doesn't end with our physical existence in this earth. It goes on and he gives us a new, a new body. The resurrection matters because it gives us assurance of our resurrection from the dead. The resurrection matters also because it gives us a clear and powerful message to speak to the world. This message that I just spoke to you, I look forward to. It's the backdrop of everything I ever say every week. I may not focus on the resurrection every time, although it's somewhere in the liturgy. In the back of my mind, in the back of my confidence, 
the back of the leaders of this church's confidence is the knowledge that Christ lives and reigns over his church. He's the head over his church. He's not a dead representative. He's the living Lord who's king over it. And we are just simply under shepherds, trying to be faithful by his grace to feed you Christ in every possible way. The resurrection also matters because it gives us a certain assurance of hope, knowing that without Christ's resurrection, we'd be dead in our sins. It just it gives us a new look on an outlook on life. It's our perspective is different. We're not. Yeah, none of us wants to die, at least so far as the process of dying. But I hope none of us are so limited to think that this is all there is. Uh, this gives us a hope to what will be so much better. and We look forward to it. That's where it comes into the practical, the personal. Let's consider that question. How does the resurrection translate to power for living now? Certainly it compels us. Certainly we're motivated by knowing the fact of it and what it means and how it, it verifies all that Jesus has revealed in his word. But again, draw your attention to people who were changed and transformed. Eusebius wrote about a person named Julian. He was an old man who was afflicted with gout. He barely moved. Having confessed the Lord in front of his accusers, he was carried out on a camel through the city. Couldn't even walk. From that height, he was scourged and finally consumed in an immense fire, surrounding by the thronging crowds and spectators. There was a woman named Quinta that Eusebius writes of. They took her to the temple of an idol, tried her to force her to worship. But she turned away in disgust, and they tied her by the feet and dragged her through the city, dashing her against the millstones and scourging her at the same time. When they completed the dragging they were, where they started, they stoned her. And we won't even tell people in our fraternity about Jesus. We won't even share Christ with someone in our office. We've never talked to our neighbor about the living Lord. The power of the resurrection ought to totally change the urgency that we have, the surety we have about sharing this. You can't make anyone believe, no more than anyone made you believe. That's the work of the Spirit. But the means He uses is transform people, empowered by the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, to spread that message, to share that message, to live that message. The resurrection means everlasting life for those who belong in Christ. That's the most practical connection. We, are, we live up forever as a result of what Christ has done. So you have to ask the question, do you belong to Christ? Look on your outline, Romans 8, 9 through 11. Those verses give us, one of the places in the New Testament where we see the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, working in us, but first and foremost, making us to belong. We belong to God. Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. When Adam and Eve fell, their soul immediately died, and then their body slowly followed course. And everybody in this life experiences that decline of our bodies. You know, we have this kind of, this, it, it goes to this peak, but then it's mostly down, right? If we're honest, physically. But when we're born again to new life, when we're given the Spirit of God, now we're being renewed inwardly day by day, even though outwardly we waste away in this life, in this time. Do you belong to Christ? That's what determines whether you're alive or dead. How do you belong to Christ? Well, it's by believing in Christ and His finished work on the cross. 
And I cannot make you believe. God gives us this belief. He does so as we hear the message, as it's revealed, he by his spirit unites us together with his son, according to his will. And when you hear the message of John 3.16 that we hear so often, see it at games, whatever, you might see it, and most people probably know what it is and memorized it. But the Spirit of God must take that truth, that whoever believes in him, Christ, shall not perish, but have eternal life. God enlivens that in us, and we are born of the Spirit. When we read Romans, and it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we recognize, that's me, I'm a sinner. I'm not looking around at everyone else to decide who's more sinful. I'm a sinner. That's the bottom line. And I fall short of the glory of God, just as Paul says in Romans. But I also read in Romans, Romans 10, where Paul said, God demonstrated his love towards us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. So I believe that. I can only believe that if we're born of the Spirit. Describing this, Paul says to the Ephesians, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. Do you belong to Christ? Is your faith, trust, confidence totally in the finished work of Christ? It can be, because he rose again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The resurrection means spiritual or everlasting life for those who belong to Christ. In the same spirit who raised Jesus dwells in you. And that's resurrection power. I want you to consider in closing a few ways in which the power of the resurrection has had its effect on you. First, the resurrection has granted power to have our sins forgiven. Christ's worthy sacrifice is now the valid payment for our sins. God says, through Paul and Romans, He delivered Him up for our trespasses and raised, raised Him for our justification. Power to have our sins forgiven comes from the resurrection. Power to defeat sin in our lives. That is, the same Spirit of God that raised Jesus and dwells us and gives us the ability to have victory over sin. Not total victory in this life, but victory and growing victory as He works in us. That's because the same Spirit of God that raised Jesus also helps us to say no. Power to be used by God. God uses people to do great things all the time which is really a display of his glory that he would use broken vessels. But this power that raised Christ also works in people, works in his church to change things. Power to mature, to be more like Christ, to continue to grow, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, Paul says. Look again at Romans 8, verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life, give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Brothers and sisters, your present circumstances are controlled by God. He raised Jesus from the dead. Certainly, He can deal with your anxiety over whatever is making you nervous right now. It's understandable that we'd be scared to death. We weren't made to die. God made man to live forever. And his soul will live forever somewhere. But this redemption that God gives us through Christ should change our outlook in all these petty things that so 
wear us down. Certainly, if he could raise Christ, he could help you pay your bills. Certainly, if he raised Christ, he can help you overcome that fear of going to ask forgiveness of someone you ought to. Certainly, if he raised Christ together, us together with Christ, he can help you overcome whatever thing is weighing you down. Our future hope and destiny is secure in God, just as our present circumstances are controlled and provided for by God. He says in Romans 6, 4, and 5, We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Dear believers, you have the same spirit dwelling in you that raised Jesus from the dead. That's what resurrection power means. What power that he gave Sanctus, who, as Eusebius wrote of, suffered many torments devised by men. This is in the middle 200s. When these men could do no more, they fastened hot plates of brass to various parts of his body. He withstood all the suffering, but his body was one continued wound, mangled and shriveled, that had entirely lost the form of a man to the external eye. Again, he passed through the tortures. These included the strokes of the scourge, the draggings and lacerations from the beasts, other tortures demanded by the audience, and the iron chair upon which his body was burned. Other tortures followed until he died. What gave this person the ability to withstand that? All they had to do was speak a word of recantation. But they knew that a word spoken in temporary circumstances was an insult to the Eternal One who would give them life forever. Resurrection power turned common people into pillars of the church for the glory of God. What are you facing? What's making you anxious? Do you fear death? Be honest. The resurrection of Jesus is powerful in its objective sense. But it's also in its ongoing transformational sense. Let's pray. Father, using the words that Paul wrote in Philippians for ourselves, we pray. But whatever gain we have had, we count it loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, we count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. For his sake, we have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that we may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that we may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, become like him in his death, that by any means possible we may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that we have already obtained this or already are perfect, but we press on to make it our own because Christ Jesus has made us his own. Amen.